0: Morning, Kisa. Uh, if you've got your Bibles, you can open up to Second Timothy, chapter three. We're going to be in the the end of chapter three as well as beginning of chapter four uh, this morning as we continue our little series on truth that we started last week. Uh, on May thirty first, nineteen eighty nine, the uh, deadliest flood in U.S. history happened. Uh, it ended up killing over 2,000 people and nearly wiped out the entire town of Johnstown, Pennsylvania. And you might ask, well, what caused, there's been no other flood like it in our history, what caused a flood like that to happen? What, what caused so much chaos, so much damage, so much devastation in Johnstown that day? The cause actually lay 14 miles away. That 14 miles upstream from Johnstown, there was a dam called the South Fork Dam. And, and this dam had been built, I think, about 50 years earlier. But just 10 years before 1989, some, or 1889, someone had bought the property that the dam was on, and they made alterations to it. They lowered it by several feet, and they also took out the release valves that are meant to be a part of a dam. And it was never properly looked at or checked since it was bought in that moment. See what what lied upstream from kind of all the damage and chaos was a faulty dam that had not been properly evaluated in years. Last week we started this series on truth by asking the question, what is truth? What is truth? And we sought to define what truth is as well as see some of the results that happen in our lives when we get truth right or wrong. But we need to recognize, and this is part of what we're going to do this morning, that there's something that lies upstream from truth in our lives. That that there's something that may go unquestioned or unevaluated for many times in our lives, or long periods of times in our lives. And yet it's something that can have all sorts of ramifications downstream in what we accept and believe is true, and how we live as a result. And so I guess, well, what what is it that ultimately lies upstream from what we believe is true? It, it's the authority that we place our confidence in. Kevin DeYoung says it this way, he says, all religion rests on authority. In fact, every academic discipline and every sphere of human inquiry rests on authority. Whether we realize it or not, we all give someone or something the last word. Our parents, our culture, our community, our feelings, the government, peer-reviewed journals, opinion polls, impressions, or a holy book. We all have someone or something that we turn to as the final arbiter of truth claims. The, the danger is that we've never actually maybe sometimes stopped to ask, what is the final authority in my life? Like, who gets the final say in my life on what is true and false and right or wrong? And then along with that, that that maybe we've never stopped to actually ask, well, is the authority that I'm placing my confidence in really sturdy, or is it actually faulty? One of the fundamental aspects of our lives is who or what we trust as the final authority who or what gets the final say in our lives on what is true and false and right and wrong. And so we're going to look at 2 Timothy this morning, as I said, uh, chapter 3, verses 14 through chapter 4, verse 4. And in these verses, we come across two different sources of final authority. Really, we could point to more than just these two, but we're just going to look at these two this morning. One, that many in our world... And many in the church, I think perhaps even without realizing it, put confidence in or rely on and yet ends up being faulty. And then the other that ends up being a sure, steady source of authority that we should put our confidence in. So as we look at this passage this morning, we want to again ask three questions together. First, what is the faulty authority we're prone to rely on? Second, what is the sturdy authority we're meant to rely on? And then third, why does it matter? In other words, what are the implications for our lives today? So let's pray together and then read starting in 2 Timothy 3.14. Father, whenever we come before you on a Sunday morning, we want to be aware both that you are here with us, that the God we, we sung about this morning who is holy, none like you, and yet the God who is mercy, who has so much mercy that it's more than all of our sins, that that God is here. You are with us right now. And God, because we believe that, we, we want to hear from you. We want to hear you speak, and we pray that you would speak through your spirit and through your word. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Starting in verse 14. But as for you, this is Paul writing a letter to Timothy. But as for you, continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed, and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. Paul's main point in that passage to Timothy I think could be summed up in this way. Stick with the Bible. Stick with the scriptures. Continue believing, continue trusting, continue obeying, continue preaching the Bible. And one of the reasons for why this is so important, both for Timothy in this day and for us today, is then given in chapter 4, verses 3 through 4, what we read. For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions, and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths." In those two verses, we see the the faulty authority that many in the first century and just as many, if not more, in the 21st century are prone to rely on. That we're prone to trust in ourselves as the final authority. And yet what Paul is showing us is that trusting in ourselves as the final authority will let us down. Paul tells us in verse 3 and 4 that people will seek out others who will simply tell them what they want to hear. If that is not a description of our world today, like I don't know what is, where there are so many different voices we can go to, so many different voices we hear and read, And we can be so prone to just kind of pick and choose and accumulate the ones that just tell us what we want to hear. But notice that the final authority that Paul references in this verse is not actually the teachers or the outside voices. It's the individual. It's the the person who looks to themselves as the final authority of what's true and false or right and wrong. The the modern day equivalent of this verse or translation of this verse, I think, could just as easily say, for a time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but will listen to and follow their hearts and accumulate teachers who will affirm them in this. John Bloom says, follow your heart is the creed of billions of people in our day. It's embraced by billions and essentially is a belief that your heart is a compass inside of you that d- will direct you to your own true north if you just have the courage to follow it. But, but Paul points out that trusting in ourselves as the final authority or following our hearts is a faulty authority because ultimately what he says in verse 4 is that it will cause us to turn away from listening to the truth and to wander off into myths. Now, I, I want to dive a little bit deeper here this morning, and I want to ask, along with you, why shouldn't we trust in ourselves or follow our hearts as the final authority? Because I, th- I think that first point, I don't know, maybe there are some, but I, I don't know that many people in here would disagree with that. And say, well, yeah, we shouldn't trust in ourselves as the final authority. But I want to ask, well, why? Why shouldn't we trust in ourselves? Why shouldn't we follow our hearts? Why shouldn't I be the final authority or you be the final authority? And likely, if you've been in the church any amount of time, you kind of right away respond, well, because we're sinful and our hearts are sinful. I want to say, yes, absolutely. But I also want to then work that out and say, well, how does that show up in our lives? and, And why does that mean we shouldn't follow our hearts? ultimately. And so I, I want to look together at some answers we might find to that question in the Bible and what it says about our hearts. And, and we should note that when the Bible talks about our hearts, it's talking about kind of the inner person, not, not just our emotions, but the seat of our emotions, our desires, and our thinking and willing. It's the core of who we are, is what, what the Bible means when it's talking about our hearts. So why, why shouldn't we trust in ourselves or follow our hearts? First because our hearts are fickle. In other words, that what we think, feel, desire, and want can change moment by moment, day to day, month by month, whatever it might be. Let me stop and ask it. How many, if you go to the book of Exodus, and you see the story of, in Exodus, Pharaoh and the Israelites. In Exodus 7 through 14, how many times does Pharaoh have a change of heart? Four times. Four times where he says, all right, fine, I'll let you go. That's what I want. You can go. And then a moment later, a day later, whatever, no, 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 I changed my mind. I don't want that. I, I a change of heart. Ultimately leading to him letting them go and then chasing them into the wilderness to try to bring them back. That, that is, I think, a picture of every single one of our hearts. That we can be prone to feel a certain way one day, only to feel completely differently the next day. And and you probably experienced this even this week for many of you, that there might have been one day where you you were riding high and you were thinking, life is great, everything is awesome, I had three cups of coffee this morning, I'm ready to take the world. And then just the next day you're thinking, man, life is really difficult, it's really hard and things are miserable today. Like That can happen not even just day-to-day, but like hour-to-hour sometimes. Our hearts are far too unreliable to be our final authority. Really a good question to ask about any authority we might trust in is to simply say, does this change over time, or does it remain the same? Does it change over time, or does it remain the same? Second, our hearts are biased. That deep down we all want certain things to be true, and we want other things to be false. Every single one of us in here, that's true of. And we can think of this as even just kind of small, humorous examples. Let's say that there are two different studies that come out, two different backed research about coffee. And one of those studies tells me that coffee is good for my health, and that over time it will actually improve the health of my heart. And then the other study says, no, actually the, the amount of caffeine that's in coffee, if you drink it over time, will not be good for your health and will have detrimental effects. Which of those studies am I going to be more likely to believe? The first one, because I like coffee and I want to be infirmed in that I should drink coffee and that it's actually good for me. And guess what? We could do this in all sorts of areas of our lives where we look at there's something I want to be true, and so I will be biased towards whatever might be out there telling me that is true or false. And if we can do that in really small ways, we can also do it in really big ways. Because Paul says this is exactly what we're prone to do with the existence of God. Paul points out in Romans 1 that as sinners, we don't want God to exist, Romans 1.21, he's making this argument all through Romans 1, but Romans one twenty one. he says, For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. As sinners, we would rather live in a world where we get to set up our own gods, or better yet, where we get to be our own gods, And we get to choose what's right and wrong and true and false. And so we try to, we don't want God to exist and try to, on our own, suppress the knowledge of his existence. Our hearts are more partisan than CNN or Fox News. Like deep down, our hearts are more partisan than any biased news outlet you might point to. Because deep down, we have certain things we want to be true and don't want to be true. They are not reliable, shouldn't be trusted as our authority. Third, our hearts are deceitful. The, Jeremiah seventeen nine 9 was, was maybe a verse that first jumped into your mind when we asked that question, well, why shouldn't we trust in our hearts or ourselves? Where Jeremiah says, The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? Our hearts tell us lies. In John Bloom says, the truth is, no one lies to you more than your own heart. Again, we can, we can think of this even in just small, kind of humorous, ridiculous examples. Two, two weeks ago, I was uh, randomly thinking about Travis Kelsey. Like, that's kind of weird. Uh, I don't know if it's because everyone was out in Travis and Taylor Swift costumes for Halloween, but for some reason, I was thinking about Travis Kelsey, and I wondered uh, I wonder how old he is. Like, is see the same age as me. Or I don't know if you ever do this with famous people. Where you're like, I wonder if they're how close in age they are to me. So I looked it up, and I found out Travis Kelsey is 34 years old. And I mean, I thought, oh, okay, he's several years older than me. Uh, that's interesting. And I kind of went about my business for the next three or four minutes. Three or four minutes went by until it finally clicked. I turned 34 on Monday before I looked at this. I'm 34. I'm the same age as Travis Kelsey. Like for a solid four minutes, I was convinced I was three or four years younger than what I actually was. And I'm guessing you've all experienced this in some way too. Whether it's with your age, or maybe it's the day of the week, or some other place where you really feel like something is true, only to later on realize, wait a second, that wasn't true. My heart deceived me. And if our hearts can deceive us in really small ways then we should accept that they can also deceive us in really big ways. Things like, what will truly make me happy and satisfy me? Things like, who am I? What's my identity? Things like, what's God like? Things like, is there life after death? And if so, does everyone go to heaven? Or does hell exist and is that a real place that people go to? See, see, if we don't trust our hearts when it comes to small things, or we see how we can be deceived in small things, then we should be willing to realize we can be deceived when it comes to the big questions of life as well, if we rely on our hearts. And then fourth, our hearts are depraved. Ecclesiastes 9.3 says it this way, the hearts of the children of men are full of evil and madness is in their hearts while they live. And Jesus said it this way, for out of the heart comes evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false witness, and slander. Christianity says we are all born with sinful hearts and that if we simply follow our hearts without God changing them, it will lead to all sorts of evil. And, and we know this in experience too, if we're honest. Who are the people that really truly follow their hearts? Dictators. Like, dictators follow their hearts and decide what's true and false and right and wrong and leave a wave of carnage in their path. Who are the people who follow their hearts into brokenness in their lives? Drug addicts are those who follow their hearts into addiction. Dads who walk out the doors on their family are those who follow their hearts out the door. Those who become enslaved to pornography are those who got there by ultimately following their hearts. And deep down, apart from God's grace, we all follow our hearts. This this is why when we hear the, the term follow your heart or see people doing that, we shouldn't simply scoff and look down on it or think how foolish, but we should be reminded and humbly admit again that it is because we have all followed our hearts that we also desperately need God's grace to save us and change our hearts. We we need a far better authority than ourselves to decide between what is true and false. And so we might ask, well, what what is that better authority? And based off what we've read in 2 Timothy and what Christians have believed throughout all history, you probably already know my answer to that question. The the Bible is our sure and final authority. Why? Why? because all scripture is breathed out by God, Paul says in 2 Timothy 3.16. If the Bible is God's word, then it should be our sure and final authority. If the Bible is God's word, then it should be our 100% trusted authority and our Supreme Court final say authority. That's what I mean by sure, sure and final authority. I might ask, why? Because it, if our creator has spoken to us, then he gets the final say. Because he's made the world and he's made us and he knows every one of us inside and out. And not only that, because of the character of God as well. God is the exact opposite of our sinful hearts. He's unchanging. He's impartial. He doesn't lie. And he's perfectly righteous. If the Bible is not God's word, if this is not God's word, then we would be foolish to make this our sure and final authority. And yet, if it is God's word, then we would be foolish to make anything or anyone else our sure and final authority. So, the question you might be asking, or that we should ask sooner or later, and maybe many times in our lives, is how? do I know the Bible is God's word? How do I know the Bible is God's word? If someone came up to you tomorrow and asked you that question, how do you know the Bible is God's word? How would you answer? My answer might surprise you because the Bible tells me so. How do I know the Bible is God's word? Because the Bible tells me and I would say shows me that it's God's word. And you might say, wait a second, Kyle, that, that is circular reasoning. You can't use the, the Bible to prove the Bible. Wait. But we should recognize this is what everybody does when it comes to whatever their ultimate authority is in this life. But Michael Kruger puts it this way. He says, when it comes to de- demonstrating the truth of an ultimate authority, one cannot help but appeal to it. Indeed, if one tried to prove an ultimate authority by appealing to some other authority, then that would just prove it wasn't really ultimate. Thus, ultimate authorities, by definition, must be self-authenticating. So, for example, if human reason is your final authority and someone asks you why, well, in the end, you have to end up appealing to reason in some sense or if following your heart is your ultimate authority and someone asks you why, in the end, you end up having to say in some sense, because that's what I feel is best. So yes, we use the Bible to prove the Bible, but we aren't doing anything different than anyone else does when it comes to whatever their ultimate authority is. And we should recognize that there are other evidences outside the Bible that point to the truth of the Bible. Things like manuscript evidence and how it stood the test of time or archaeological evidence that confirms the people or events that that the Bible recorded actually lived and happened. But my guess is most of us, if we're confronted with how do I know the Bible is true, can't pull those things out of our head and spit those out. And that in reality, what we should go back to to know the Bible is true is because it claims to be the word of God, because it shows itself to be the word of God, and because the Holy Spirit witnesses to the truth that it's the Word of God. And so I want us just to look at each of those statements for a moment. First, the Bible claims to be the Word of God. If we're to evaluate whether this is God's Word or not, one of the first things we should ask is simply, what does this claim to be? What does this book that's actually made up of 66 different books, what does it claim for itself? And so this is just a short overview. We could go far more into this. Uh, and I included an article or attached an article to your notes if you want to read more on well, what does the Bible actually claim for itself. But here's some of what it claims. 2 Timothy 3.16, like we just read, all scripture is breathed out by God. The, the Bible claims to be the very breath or word of God, not just part of it, but Paul says all of it, all scripture, breathed out by God, spoken by him. 2 Peter 1.20-21 20 through 21 says, knowing this first of all, that no prophecy of scriptures, he's talking about the Bible, comes from someone's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of men, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. In other words, the Bible is written by human authors who were inspired or carried along by God who spoke to them and speaks through them. That it's God's words. 435 times, different times in the Old Testament, we could hear the authors of the Bible saying, Thus says the Lord, claiming what I am writing down, God says. Hebrews 1, 1 through 2 says, Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets, again referring to the Old Testament, but in these last days, He has spoken to us by His Son. Claiming God speaks through the Bible. Exodus 7, 17, 14. We find the Lord saying, then the Lord said to Moses, write this. And you can find that throughout the Old Testament. Other times God says, write this down. Write this as a memorial in a book and recite it in the ears of Joshua. That God told and guided the authors of the Bible to write down words, his words. And then John 10, 35, Jesus speaking. We, we could do a whole sermon on what is Jesus' view of the Bible and how did he use the Bible. But in John ten thirty-five, he's making an argument from the Bible or citing the Bible in an argument he's making, and he says, Scripture cannot be broken. In other words, Scripture is true. It doesn't change. It can't be broken. Jesus doesn't just say, this is what I say. He says, no, this is what the Bible says, and you should trust the Bible. I, I, we could keep going here, and there's four, I had to cut out a bunch here, but, but I hope you just see that when we come to the Bible, we have to recognize it claims to be the word of God. Then second, the Bible shows itself to be the Word of God. This is traditionally, maybe you've heard this term before or not, but it is, is kind of traditionally called the self authentication of the Bible. That as we read it, we come to recognize and believe in the truth of the claim that this is God's Word because it has certain qualities, divine qualities about it that reveal it or show it to be God's Word. Traditionally, people have pointed to the beauty and excellency of the Bible that there's no other book like it, or no other group of books like it. And that's part of why it stood the test of time. Or people point to the unity and harmony of the Bible, that though this is 66 different books written by about 40 different authors, written over the period of thousands of years, it demonstrates a remarkable unity in message and what it's saying. But By the way, if you ever hear someone saying, well, the Bible contradicts itself, you, you should respond, not, not in a harsh way, but gently and just be like, well, can you, can you show me where the Bible contradicts itself? And then to look into, well, is that actually a contradiction or does it just seem to be an apparent contradiction that people have pointed out but haven't dug into? And then third, people point pointing to the power of the Bible. That over history, it has changed and transformed so many people's lives, including you here today, if you're a follower of Christ. Again, we we can look to other evidences outside the Bible that might help us affirm that this is God's word. But, But ultimately, we come to know this is God's word by reading the Bible. And as we read the Bible, the Holy Spirit witnesses within us, this is God's word. This is God's word. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 4, 3 through 5, or 3 through 6, I'm, I'm cutting out 5 here. And even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. For God, who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Paul is speaking here specifically of the gospel, but we can apply this to the whole Bible because the Bible is the book that ultimately has the gospel as its central message and reveals the gospel to us. No- notice what Paul is saying. He says the truth, beauty, and glory of the gospel and the Bible is not seen until the Holy Spirit opens our eyes to be able to see the truth, beauty, and glory of the Bible. Re- recently, uh, I, I've told you this last week, I told you I was out in Montana. And I have another kind of example from our time in Montana. Uh, we, we were getting ready to take off to fly back home. And something happened uh, that's never happened to me before when flying on a plane. When we took off, it was 8.45 in the morning and it was completely cloudy and snowing. Like it looked like an absolutely dreary day. I don't know if dreary is the right word for snow, but it it looked cloudy, it looked dark and it was snowing. And then as we climbed, at some point we broke through the clouds. I'm going to guess 8,000 to 10,000 feet. We broke through the clouds. And when we broke through the clouds, this is a picture of what we saw that actually the the sun was shining and it was this incredibly beautiful day where, where it was shining on the mountains and you could see the mountaintops for like miles. Now the truth that the sun was shining and that the mountaintops were beautiful was there all along, but the clouds had veiled our eyes from being able to see that truth. And it wasn't until we broke through the clouds that we actually then saw the truth of the beauty of the sun. In in the same way, the truth and beauty of the Bible, that it's God's word, is true all along. And yet it's not until God through the Holy Spirit opens our eyes, removes the clouds, helps us to see that we then see it is true, it is good, it is beautiful. And we come to fully believe that it's God's word. So if you're someone who is here this morning who doesn't believe the Bible is God's word, and you would say, well, it's full of contradictions or it's just other people's interpretations of God or it's just a bunch of myths, can I challenge you? Read it. Like open it up, not just one verse, not just one chapter, open it up and read it and ask God, God, if you're real, show me yourself in these pages. Because time and time again throughout history, people have done that, and God has shown people, here's who I am, and this is my word. That's part of my story as well. Or if you're someone here this morning, you're a Christian, and you have other people who question the truth that this is God's word, or you, you, you doubt it, and we, we all do at times in our lives. There, again, are other arguments we could point to. And a great book that you could look at is 50 reasons we believe. 50 lines of evidence to confirm the Christian faith. It gives 20 reasons. Here's why we believe the Bible is true in God's word. But I think one of the best things you and I can do in those moments is to simply pick up the Bible again, read it again, and to say, God, open my eyes that I might behold wondrous things out of your word. Charles Spurgeon gives a great analogy here where he says this, and he's talking about the gospel, but again, it applies to the whole Bible. He says, suppose a number of persons were to take it into their hands that they had to defend a lion, full-grown king of beasts. There he is in the cage, and here come all the soldiers of the army to fight for him. Well, I would suggest to them they should kindly stand back and open the door And let the lion out. I believe that would be the best way of defending the lion. For he would take care of himself. And the best apology for the gospel is to let the gospel out. Do you want to know if the Bible is true? Let the lion out of the cage. Open it. Read it. Seek to understand it. And discover whether it really is God's word. Or be reminded that it really is God's word. That that leads to one final thing then this morning. If the Bible is God's word, what are the implications for our lives? If the Bible is our sure and final authority, then, and I want to give just six implications. I'm going to go really quick through these because we're going to be talking about some of these in our upcoming messages in this series. If the Bible is our sure and final authority, then we should sit under the Bible rather than standing over it. That's what Paul is saying in this passage to first to Timothy. He's saying we should let the Bible teach us, correct us, rebu- rebuke us, reprove us, and train us. We sit under it, we don't stand over it. The question for us is when we come to something in these pages or hear something taught from the Bible, the question for us is not first of all, do I like it? The question is, does the Bible say it? Is it true? And so when it comes to the Bible's teaching on gender and sexuality or human sinfulness or the existence of hell or what the Bible has to say about justice and poverty and racism, we do not stand over it and try to explain it away or ignore it, but rather we say that's true and I'm going to seek to live like it's true and actually understand why it's good as well. Second, the Bible should be a steady source of truth in our lives. In other words, we should know the Bible, read the Bible, meditate on the Bible, and listen to the Bible be preached. What a beautiful thing that in the midst of the cacophony of voices in our time, so many of which we don't always know, is that true? Isn't that true? We can come back to this book and say, I know this voice is true no matter what. And so I'm going to listen to this more than I listen to any of that other stuff over and over and over again. We'll talk about that in two weeks a little bit more. Third, we should test all other authorities by the Bible. In other words, it's not that we shouldn't have other authorities in our lives. In fact, it's good for there to be other authorities in our lives. The the Bible is not anti-science, anti-logic, anti-medicine, or anti-whatever other authority you might put up, Right? No, no, it's good for us to have experts in certain fields that we can trust. But in the end, when they contradict something that the Bible has said, we say, well, the Bible is my sure and final authority and I trust it above other authorities and evaluate them by it. Fourth, we should treasure and cherish the Bible. If we confess with our mouths, this is God's word. And yet we rarely, if ever, open it up, read it, meditate on it, memorize it, listen to it, then we should ask, am I really believing in my heart that this is God's word? Because if God has really spoken to us, then we should cherish and delight in and treasure his words. Like all that God would give us fresh passion and desire for his word. I I need that just as much as anyone else. Fifth, we should trust the Bible over our feelings. It can be so easy for us to have a caricature of God where we end up believing in a God who is less holy, less glorious, and less fearful than the God who really exists. Or believing in a God who is less merciful and less gracious and less loving than the God who really exists. At every day, our hearts can and still do lie to us, that we feel things every day that aren't true, that our hearts condemn us, or they convince us God is out to get us, or he doesn't really care about us. And in those moments, we need to take our feelings and speak the truth to them and say, no, the Bible tells me this is true, and so I'll trust it whether I feel it or not, which leads to six. The Bible is evidence that God loves you and I and wants us to know him. We should never forget God didn't have to speak to us. Like God could have left us ignorant of him. He could have said I you're on your own. I'm not going to tell you about myself. But he didn't. And Matt smethurst draws out the beauty of this when he says, "He peeled back the curtain and then opened his holy mouth." Any authentic knowledge of God hinges on his generous self-disclosure to us. Only through his words can we discover who he is, what he's like, what he's after, and how we come to know him. This ought to humble us deeply. The Bible you possess is evidence that God loves you and wants a relationship with you. No matter who you are or how many times you've spurned his love, he is still moving toward you, still talking to you, still befriending you through a book. When it comes to the Bible, the fact that God has spoken to us is evidence that he loves us and he wants us to know him. And not only that, but it's through the Bible that we hear God saying, I love you. And here's what I'm like. And not only that, but it's through the Bible that we see God demonstrating and showing his love in his son who goes to the cross for us. Jesus obediently follows God's heart to the cross where he dies so that every single one of us who have foolishly followed our own hearts can find grace and healing and hope in him. That's why Paul says the scriptures are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. In the Bible, we not only find a sure and final authority, but get this. We find the only authority who is willing to suffer and die in order to save us. Why wouldn't I want to listen to that authority above all other ones? Do you want to know what's true Do you want to know God, both how great and awesome he is, and yet how amazing his love is for us? Then pick up the Bible and read and hear him speak. Father, we praise you that you have spoken to us. Praise you that you have not left us ignorant of who you are or your great love and grace and mercy for us. God, we we confess on our own. We are prone to follow our hearts. And that on our own, we don't see and cherish and treasure your word for what it is. And so, God, we ask again that you'd be gracious to give us eyes to see, ears to hear, hearts to believe, and lives to obey your word. And that we might sit under this and cherish it above all else. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.